a few notes of thanks before we dive into the message this morning. Number one, thank you for everyone who came out and supported and shared the Jesus and Buddha event that we uh, held here last Thursday. Over 60 people came to it. Um, my, by my estimation, about one in five who are not connected to any churches within uh, this region came. I had a great conversation with some Buddhists afterwards, and it was just a really, I think, really good night. and really affirmed that those are the kinds of events that I'd like to do more of here. I'd like to create a bridge where Christians and non-Christians can come together and people can be exposed to the truth of the gospel and the love of Jesus in a way that for them feels very non-threatening and feels very accessible and treats them with a lot of respect. So I want to say thank you for that. Um, also thank you, I don't think I've done a formal thank you for everybody who took part in our sanctuary repainting days. Um, and so I just want to say that. Can we have a round of applause? You know who you are. Everybody who participated. That was a massive undertaking. It was a huge undertaking, and I specifically want to um, celebrate Carrie Marsland, who did a lot of the pre-work and prep for that. Yeah, you can applause. Yep. Um, we still got a few things. We have a few alterations. We're still in the midst of making, and we're still uh, Paul's still doing some great work and setting up Judy's office. And so there's just a ton of people, but it was really encouraging to see people come and um, and serve and give, and it was really, really fun. It was really enjoyable, and for someone who's not even a strength type, I, I even enjoyed myself. My back was sore for a few days after, but I'm just not used to working those muscles. Uh, so thanks for that. And also, I want to say, I've been really encouraged. I've heard two stories over the last two weeks of two very different uh, uh, situations, but they both were stories of people who had taken my idea of learning to love God, heart, soul, mind, and strength, and coming up with a plan, and have really run with it. As a pastor, you don't know, in a lot of ways, whether or not the seed that you're sowing is falling on good soil or unfruitful soil. And a lot of people here, I've noticed in this church, a lot of people aren't, uh, you know, um, you know, they're not braggarts. They're not constantly going around saying, well, this is how I'm growing in my faith. Uh, there's a lot of people here with a really quiet, mature faith, and yet I've heard of... Um, one story of, of a couple who, way back in the spring, after I had first introduced this idea, challenged themselves and said, what could we do in the area of strength? And they said, we're going to commit to hosting a Thursday night potluck community meal at our house. And we're just going to invite our neighbors over. And some of the stories that are starting to now bubble up from that neighborhood, because people know, oh, on Thursday night, I can go over to this couple's house. And rubbing shoulders with uh, Christians who love them, who are simply saying, hey, let's just share a meal and, and get to know each other powerful, powerful stuff. And that came out of them saying, this is outside of our comfort zone, but let's try it. And it's continued on. It's had a huge impact. I heard of another um, two women in the church who um, knew of each other, but weren't necessarily best friends. And they've taken to heart this idea that I'm going to put together a heart, soul, mind, and strength growth plan. But they've taken it to the next level instead of just keeping it private and saying, well, I'm just going to hope that I do these things myself. They've sought each other out and committed to meeting together once a month to pray together to challenge each other on what they're doing. And things like that, to me, are massive. To me, that, that is a huge indication of the kingdom of God breaking forth. When we're not just sitting and passively hearing the words of Jesus, but like Jesus says in Matthew 7, we're actually beginning to put these things into practice. That's where spiritual transformation happens. And I just want to say I've been so encouraged pastorally um, to hear some of these stories bubbling up of people taking maybe what seems like to them really small steps of faith, but they have massive reverberations within 
the kingdom of God and within individuals' lives and families and marriages and communities. So keep pressing forward. Okay, we've arrived at the final week of our Easter series where we've been looking at how does Jesus' resurrection change how we live as Christians. And today I want to talk about how the resurrection changes how we parent our children. Our children's well-being and flourishing is probably something that we are all united in working towards. That, that is our common goal. Most of us sincerely want what is best for our children. We have dreams and, and ambitions for our children. We want to see them thrive. And most of us spend an enormous amount of time and energy and money to making sure that happens. But the question that I want to ask us this morning is, what is our end game? Like, what is the the, the What's the bottom line? What's, what's the goal line for what we want for our children? Like, wh- what are we expending all this time and energy and resources towards? Now, when I talk to people, and as I've talked to people and parents and eavesdropped on conversations in different contexts, a lot of people's bottom line, I think, comes down to, to two ideas. I hear parents a lot say, I just want my kids to be happy and or I just want them to be successful. I just want my kids to be happy, and I just want my kids to be successful. And for me, when I hear that, a a little part of my my heart breaks a little bit, because I think that's sad. Because I don't think being happy and being successful are actually very healthy goals to push our children towards. And I say that regardless of whether you consider yourself a Christian parent or just someone who wants to do the best by their children, whether you're a believer or not. Um, But that being said, I think happiness and success is an especially dangerous end game for you to have as a Christian parent who's aspiring and should be aspiring to raise uh, your child in light of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Why is that? Well, again, it's... It's not because happiness and success are bad things. Happiness is a good thing. Success, properly defined, is a good thing. But when we hold those out as what we want for our children, as they begin to internalize because we directly tell them that's what we want, or they internalize because they pick it up in in kind of the, the cultural airspace that this is the point of their lives... I think what happens is those goals of happiness and success bend the hearts of our children ever so subtly and slowly towards self-centered, self-centeredness when they're pursued as ends in themselves. When, you're, when your goal is happiness and success, I actually think as parents we're putting stumbling blocks in front of our children as they grow and understand what it means to be a human being in this world. In fact... I'd go so far as to say human beings actually disintegrate. They they move away from wholeness. They move away from maturity and integration, psychologically, spiritually, relationally. The more egocentric their pursuit becomes. That's true of all of us, right? We become less whole, less mature, less integrated the more egocentric our pursuits become, the more egocentric our ambitions are. And I would argue there's, vi- there's not many ambitions that are more egocentric when you boil it down to it than my happiness and my success. In her book, Almost Christian, 
uh, Christian professor Kendra Creasy-Dean outlined nine positive attributes of mature Christian teens. So she surveyed over 4,000 Christian leaders, uh, pastors, Christian leaders of ministries, and said, what are common characteristics that you find in real life, not on paper, in, in the teens you serve that, that would differentiate someone in a category of mature Christian teen? And they, in the sociological survey, came up with nine characteristics. And this was titled uh, Faith That Bears Fruit in her book. Nine characteristics of a mature Christian teen. Number one, they seek spiritual growth, not only alone, but also with other people. Number two, they're keenly aware of God. They view God as present and close and active. Number three, they act out of a commitment of faith in Jesus Christ. Number four, they make Christian faith a way of life. It's not just ideas in their head. They're trying to put the things that Jesus said into practice. They live lives of service. They show a lot of care for other people. They're fighting against injustice, fighting for justice. Number six, they're reaching out to other people who are different. They reach out to other people who are in need, often at cost to themselves. Number seven, they exercise moral responsibility. They take responsibility for their actions. They live with integrity. They're, they're trying as best as they know how to close the gap between the person that they know they ought to be morally and who they are. Number eight, they speak publicly about their faith. They know how to uh, evangelize and share who they are. They don't kind of hide their light under a bushel. They're very open and know how to um, connect with friends and, and connect with friends who, who aren't Christians and do so in a way that's respectful and caring and loving. And number nine, they possess a positive, hopeful spirit towards others and towards life. Now, I, I read that, and I thought, how do you grow kids like that? That's a lot more nuanced, and I think a lot deeper, and a lot more, I think as a Christian parent, it should pull on your heartstrings to say, yeah, I want that, I want these things more than I want my kids to be happy or successful. How do we grow kids like that? Well, I don't think we're ever going to get those if we're constantly putting happiness and success in front of our kids. If we're focusing on ensuring our kids are happy and setting them up for success, which culturally essentially means upward mobility. They do better economically than we've done, and they have more than enough money, and they have all the kind of lifestyle accoutrements that we think that they should have or that they want. Personal happiness and personal success, ironically, when these teens, these mature Christian teens were surveyed, none of them defined being happy or being successful as core values to them personally. This is what other people see in you. What are, what are the values that drive you? None of them mentioned, well, I really focus on being happy or I focus on being successful. And yet, many of them reported experiencing a high degree of happiness in their life. And as you can imagine, experiencing all kinds of success, economically, relationally, psychologically, spiritually. And notice that a lot of these commitments, seeking spiritual growth, reaching out to other people who are different, who are in need, living lives of service, exercising moral responsibility, many of these commitments, many of these values, many of these patterns won't lead didn't, and didn't lead these teens to feeling happy in the moment. And they didn't automatically lead to being, to experiencing success as defined by me getting ahead in the moment either. 
But when you look at this list, I think all of us, whether we're a believer or not, that's the kind of child we want to raise. As a, as a Christian father, if you fast forward 10, 15 years from now, and, and, and these are the characteristics that are attached to my children, I would be over the moon. But I don't think we're going to get it if we just float along the river and get carried through, uh, get carried down the river of happiness and success is kind of what the whole thing's about and let them define that for themselves. In my best moments as, as a parent, I'm willing to fight for these values and to sacrifice so that these get embedded in the lives of my children. Now, how do you parent so that those attributes and characteristics get embedded in our children's lives? And that's not easy, right? There are seasons in life, and often um, with, with, with children and with teens, where you're just trying to survive the crushing onslaught of daily responsibilities. The, the thought of being, like, strategic in your parenting feels like a pipe dream. That feels very opulent. You're just trying to make it through today. You're trying to do the best you can in the face of exhaustion and frayed nerves and discouragements and hardships to just get through the week, to have some positive things come out of it and say, okay, I've still got my head above water. And I get that. As a Christian parent, I'm embarrassed to admit that I have lots of times where well, I ebb and flow all the time. I have these bursts of inspiration and I'm really intentional with my kids and talking to them about God's stuff and engaging them and, and mentoring them and loving them. And then I kind of get tired and overwhelmed with all kinds of stuff, including just being intentional as a parent. And I kind of just take a break and I kind of go into neutral gear, cruise control, and just kind of wait and just let things play out just while I kind of recoup. But that's dangerous because when you get into that space of cruise control, entropy can begin to take over and kind of coasting as a parent can become a lifestyle. It can become very tempting. It becomes very tempting to slowly adopt an attitude that says, well, things are going okay, so maybe just whatever parenting will be enough. And selfishly, that's tempting. Because if I adopt the posture... Uh, well, pray for my kids, but on the ground level, it's kind of like, whatever. Maybe I'll even throw some platitudes on it. God's in control. I'll use that to justify my lack of intentionality. Um, but it's not long before whatever can really begin to sink in. And it becomes a lifestyle. It becomes a posture of the heart. And what I'm learning as a parent is that I have to dig deeper into God's grace at every stage of parenting and move beyond parenting as a hobby. It's not something that once in a while I need to be focused on. It's central to my calling as a human being and as a Christian. Because way too much is at stake. I mean, God has, I really believe, as a, as a place of conviction, God has tremendous blessings for our children. And they're going to experience all kinds of obstacles throughout their life, which are going to impede and interfere with their ability to take hold of those blessings, to experience God's love and, and a sense of um, his purpose in their lives in a full and rich way. I don't want to be one of the major impediments. I don't want my kids to look back and say, 
wow, one of the big hurdles I had to overcome was my father or a father who wasn't there for me or a father who spoke as if he was a Christian, but I never really saw that translated into our relationship within the home in terms of how he fathered us and how he cared for us. Okay, so where do we start? Number one, I think as parents, we need to offer a bigger story. How does a resurrection shift the goalposts of our parenting? Well, if the resurrection is true, if Jesus has been um, resurrected and installed as king over all things, if God has acted decisively and redemptively in history through the person of Jesus to launch new creation hope so that people can become redeemed, so that we can regain our full humanity, so that we can step into God's intended purposes for us, not just as individuals, not just as, as, as couples, but as families and as communities, then our small ambitions of making sure our kids are happy and successful, I think those need to die. I just think they need to die. Again, not because happiness or success are bad things, but but because they're too small an ambition in light of the kingdom of God. They're just too small. They're too truncated. They're too reductionistic. Something God is offering us something as Christian parents and is offering something to our children that we jeopardize when we reduce um, our aspirations of our children to simply being happy and being successful. We are called to prepare our children to know who God is, to know who they are, to know what it means to live within the kingdom of God and be an agent of restoration and his love and grace and truth in this world. We're there to prepare them to be a part of God's story, not to come up with a story of their own making and then live successfully within that. Remember Paul's words to the Corinthians that I talked about a few weeks ago, 1 Corinthians 7? He says, what I mean, brothers, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they have none, those who mourn as if they did not, those who are happy as if they were not, those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep, those who use these things, those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. And then he says this, he says, for this world and its present form is passing away. Remember the overlap of the ages diagram? Our role as parents is to prepare our children to thrive in God's new age, not to thrive in the old dying one. There was a British missionary named William Carey who once remarked, As a pastor, I am not afraid of failure. What I am afraid of is succeeding at things that don't matter. And that should be the fear that grips the heart of a Christian parent. That we succeed in empowering our kids and preparing our kids to thrive in a dying age. To succeed at things that don't matter within God's economy of the kingdom of God and within grace and his purposes. So what are we supposed to be aiming at as Christian parents? That's one thing to say happiness and success aren't big enough. They're not, they're not good enough. They're not robust enough to carry us into um, a proper understanding of, or a, a, a full and rich life for our children. If those aren't the goalposts, what are? Well, I think as the resurrection begins to take root in our hearts and lives, as its implications begin to take root, I think the values which ought to rise to the surface and kind of supplant our children's happiness presumptions around happiness and success are wisdom and vocation 
or wisdom and purpose. We should be pushing our kids towards wisdom, the cultivation of wisdom, and the cultivation of vocation, a sense of calling, a sense of purpose. Our children need wisdom way more than they need happiness. Proverbs 4, 5 to 9 says, Get wisdom, get understanding. Don't forget my words or turn away from them. Do not forsake wisdom, and she will protect you. Love her, and she will watch over you. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. Though it costs you all you have, get understanding. Cherish her, and she will exalt you. Embrace her, and she will honor you. She will give you a garland to grace your head and present you with a glorious crown. Wisdom, I think, is defined as the ability to effectively navigate the complexities of life, especially in situations where there isn't a black and white um, answer and where there isn't a roadmap. Wisdom is the ability to effectively navigate the complexities of life. And I think that is a clarion call that happens all the way through Scripture. Get wisdom. God delights in giving wisdom. Our children need wisdom more than they need the experience of being happy. And, And our children need to experience a sense of vocation, a sense of calling, a sense of deep purpose where they and who they are are being used for a grander, transcendent purpose in the kingdom of God more than they need to become successful in the eyes of the world. Our children need to be pushed towards discerning and stepping into a vocation for God's glory rather than a path of success. And they need us to value doing what God has called them to do in this world more than us value them doing what brings them or us prestige or money or fame or prosperity. I've seen it. I've seen it with, with uh, certainly teens and young adults. When a new creation vision is the canvas and the dominant colors being used are a deep sense of wisdom and a... Um, growing, emerging sense of vocation, some of the most genuinely hopeful and powerful movements in people's lives begin to happen in that, in that um, kind of worldview window of 18 to 25 when they begin embarking out into the world as adults. New and beautiful things begin to emerge in our child's life when we free them from the expectation that life is about being happy and being successful. And I think that's what we want for our children and grand, grandchildren wise, deep, mature, insightful people who are living for something greater than their own glory. They're living for God's glory. So how do we instill the values of wisdom and vocation within our children? How do we help nurture that? How do we help cultivate that within our families? Well, I think we need a better game plan because speaking from experience, I think a lot of us don't have a game plan beyond making sure that we get our kids to Sunday school a few times a month and we pray with them in the evening. Maybe we supplement with some Bible stories here and there. Um, for, for tweens and teens, we drop them off to Schlam and, and Core. And with young adults and our adult, adult children, we just kind of hope and pray at that point. Is there anything else we can do? And I want to say Yes. Let me offer a few suggestions for different stages of parenthood. Okay, so parents of young children and grandchildren. I'd want to challenge you to consider the importance of catechesis. Martin Luther, the church reformer, developed this mode of teaching, which means to echo back. It's very simple. You consist of stating a question related to the Christian faith, and then you teach children, 
to echo it back, to just simply repeat the answer back to you. So an example might be, what is our only hope in life and death? That's the question. And they would learn to parrot back to you that we are not our own, but we belong to God. Now, one of the tools that the early reformers used that actually sparked a huge spiritual revolution in families and then in communities was the adoption of catechisms within Christian homes. I don't believe there's any silver bullet that makes parenting easy, but I have become convinced that using a catechism of some kind is a really important tool that we can use as Christian parents to kind of ramp up the spiritual temperature of our homes. Catechesis is really, really helpful, both for parents and for children. For children, number one, it ensures that children are getting a well-rounded exposure to core Christian scriptures and a broad perspective of uh, scriptural teachings. And not just, it ensures that children aren't just being exposed to mom and dad's pet Bible verses and their beloved Bible stories. It exposes children to the whole counsel of God and pushes them into theological and philosophical reflection from an early age and provides solid Christian responses to these questions that if they don't have, they will have at some point. It's really great for parents because it ensures that you as a parent get a well-rounded exposure to the core scriptures and teachings of Christianity. Because again, we tend to all have favorite Bible stories, favorite biblical themes or certain emphases and we need to be grown as parents and learn and we need to know how to um, teach and impress the full counsel of God in our children not just the things that either we remember or know we need to be expanding our knowledge base and also catechesis is really important because it teaches us as parents how to teach our kids a lot of Christian parents don't know how to talk to their kids about faith, engage young children with faith. We just don't know. Um, Same author who I quoted from before, uh, she says, many adults lack confidence in articulating, much less teaching their own faith. How do we speak with conviction about faith that we have trouble explaining ourselves? And so using catechism is a huge step in training you how to train up your child in the ways of God. Proverbs 22, 6 says, train up a child in the way that he should go. And even when he is old, he won't depart from it. I don't know how to train up my child. Catechesis helps with that. It gives you a framework and a very simple structure that can be done in a few minutes a day, but then can also be expanded out kids begin to ask more questions, you begin to look up the Bible verses associated with the questions, it can become a slow boil to a rising temperature of spiritual urgency and vibrancy in the home. Deuteronomy 6, 6 6-9, God gives this command to the Israelites. He says, all these commands that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. God says, I want my truth and the love that my truth points to to saturate your entire family system. What does that look like? For a lot of us, it's like, well, that's like an overwhelming calling. I'm not even exactly sure, picture what that looks like. I would invite you to think through, maybe it would just look like starting with with a... with a dinnertime catechesis or sometime in the evening. One of my favorite catechisms is the New City Catechism. I like it because there's only 52 questions. So we try and do one question a week in our family. 
and we try and repeat it and memorize the question and the answer, and then we're going to be shifting into trying to um, repeat and memorize the scripture, the key scripture from which the answer comes. So we take one question a week and just every dinner time or every time in the evening, we just bring it up. And sometimes, honestly, it's a gong show. It doesn't go anywhere. It's three minutes of randomness. Kids are talking about other things, and it feels like nothing has happened. But we keep plugging away, and we just keep putting the questions and answers in front of our kids. We keep exposing them to God's truth. NewCityCatechism.com. It's, it's a free resource. Um, you can get it on your tablet. It's, it's, uh, it, it's really, really fantastic. There's all kind of catechism, catechisms out there. I just like that this one lines up so you just do one a week, and then every year you keep cycling it. And, and if this is something that seems foreign to you, if you're kind of like, I don't know, we've never really done anything like this as a family, so like, do we just start like tonight or like tomorrow? Like, yeah, it's not too late to start. Just start. It's going to be awkward. It's going to be weird. Any new habit, any new pattern of formation feels like you're wearing someone else's clothing for a little bit. It's like, oh, this is weird. I don't, it doesn't really fit. It's just, it's just new, and that's okay. So just start something. Another tool is the cultivation of a family mission statement. Um, it might be a good idea if you have uh, young children to just get together and say, what are we about as a family? And just trying to come up with some kind of little statement and maybe you revisit it every few years, that encapsulates what are we about as a family? What are our values? This is one that I found on the internet written by a Christian family, and they had four lines. The first line, we are not here for ourselves. We live to honor God. We want to go viral for Jesus. That was their way of saying we want to be people who, in everywhere we go, we bring God's love. Schools, playgrounds, sports teams, home, everywhere. We want to hang loose for Jesus. That was their way of saying, we don't want to be so busy. We don't want to have so much of our finances tied up, so overscheduled that we actually can't see opportunities to love and help people. We want to live simply, live free and open so that we can build relationships, love people, extend grace, give money into the kingdom of God. And we make no small plans. When we try and do something as a family, we try and think big because we have a big God. Now think about the difference that it might make, maybe not initially, but over time, if once a week, maybe at the start of Monday morning, kids are going off to school, you just read that together, just once a week. You came up with your own mission statement and just read it, and then just kept inviting your kids to to tweak it and to nuance it and make it their own year after year. That could be awesome. It's a really small thing, but I think what I'm learning as a Christian parent is you know, the small decisions have a way of leading to transformative repercussions. We're, all, we're often expecting ourselves to do these big things which, which turn the ship around right away. That's often not the way change happens. Change, change happens when we become faithful in small things. Okay, parents of teenagers. If you're a parent of a teenager, this is actually a little bit more straightforward. There's really just one piece of advice I have for you. You just need to memorize and keep one scripture before you at all times, and that is Exodus 20:13, "Thou shalt not kill." If you if you can just hold that in front of you and fulfill it every day, if you can get to the end of your day, said I've been faithful in this thing, you're you're actually you're actually fine. You're doing good. Now, of course, I joke, but uh, but I joke because being a parent of a teenager is being a, a parent during an extremely turbulent time. And I actually recommend two words and three priorities for you to focus on during this time. The two words I would invite you to keep in front of you is grace and truth. Grace and truth. 
In John 1, then describing Jesus, it says, The word, referring to Jesus, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testifies concerning him. He cries out saying, This was he of whom it was said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. For from the fullness of his grace we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. It is not an easy task, but as a Christian parent of teens, you do have to hold those two things together. I need to impress God's truth into my teen's life, but I also have to be in my posture and in my words and in my intentions, I also have to be a conduit of grace. And it's very tempting in the teenage years where autonomy and the rebellion that comes out of that makes it feel like we have to double down on the truth part. That's what it seems like they need. That needs to be held in dynamic tension with a lot of grace. Recognizing being a teen is a really threatening, vulnerable time, and it's challenging. Ephesians and Colossians are two books written to Christian communities, and Paul, who writes both of them, specifically calls out fathers of, 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 of children. He says in Ephesians 6, fathers, don't exasperate your children. Don't be so hard on God's truth. It says, instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Grace and truth. Bring them up. Train them. Don't just keep criticizing them. Teach them the right way to go. And then in Colossians 3.21, fathers, don't embitter your children, or they're just going to become discouraged. Paul will later say, you've got to learn to speak the truth in love. Truth and grace are so, so important. And the three priorities that I think we should be focusing on, ABC, just so you can remember it really easily, Lots of affirmation, clear boundaries, and consequences. On one level, that's parenting 101, but they're, all three of those are really, really needed during the teenage years. Your teenager needs to be affirmed and in words, um, in action, especially as they begin to come into expressing parts of themselves that maybe they're surprised at or you're surprised at, kind of, kind of these good skills and talents that begin to emerge, it's part of your job as a parent is to, to say, hey, I wonder if that's a vocational clue of where God may be leading you. I want to encourage you in that. I see that in you. There, there is a special aptitude there. You show a greater sensitivity here. When you do these things, you seem uncommonly fruitful. I, I want to encourage that. Lots of affirmation. But also boundaries. Clear um, clear boundaries, clear expectations of what you expect of them that are that it's rooted in God's word, that needs to be in place as well. And, oh, and may I say with the affirmation one, there's two kinds of affirmations you need to do. You need to do affirmations um, shoulder to shoulder and face to face. There's something, although it's very awkward uh, for teens, it is also very powerful to, have, to sit down and, and look into your teen's eyes and say, I want you to know that I've noticed these things in your life and I'm really, really proud of you. And again, that might be a minute-long conversation. That's okay. But that's important. But you also need to have shoulder-to-shoulder times. You're doing things with your team. And you're sharing and affirming them in the context of doing things together and building that relationship. So affirmation, boundaries, and then consequences. Consequences need to be appropriate and consistent. And not just consequences for doing bad things, but consequences for making the right decisions. One of the challenges of parenting a teen is, is... catching them when they do good things and saying, I saw that. I know you didn't know I saw that, but I noticed it, and that makes me really proud of you. Or I heard this from someone else, or a friend of a friend of a friend, and I want you to know that means a lot to me. 
I know that was, it wasn't easy for you. Affirmation, boundaries, and consequences. Being a parent of a teen is a very challenging time. Do not give up. Um, you have to be affirming and setting boundaries and, and, and following through on consequences to your teen because your teen, even though they won't say they want this, they need to feel like you're fighting for them. They need to feel like you're fighting for their best. And it is increasingly common in our cultural context for parents to think, well, what my teen, teen wants is autonomy and freedom. So I'm going to be the cool parent. I'm going to be the popular parent. And I'm just going to be like, yeah, do whatever you want. As long as you're vaguely responsible, just go for it. I want you to be happy and successful. Short-term teens love that, obviously. It's a huge amount of autonomy. Long-term, the suspicion that begins to creep in is, were my parents using the language of empowerment to just get out of actually parenting me? Do they, were they using language of empowerment and autonomy and not wanting to uh, hold me back or, or hold me down with rules because they just didn't actually care enough to fight for my best? I never want my kids to ever have that suspicion when it comes to my wife and I. Parents of adult children, three things that I would say. We're always parents. Like that video said, you never stop being a mom. You never stop being a father. Resource your children, whether they're Christian or not. Find them good magazines. Find them good books. Pay for them to go to marriage enrichment things. Just find ways to resource your children. Encourage them and ask how you can be praying for them. Whether your children are following Christ or not, be saying, hey, I'm... I see your movement here. I know you're trying to do the right thing. I really encourage you. But just keep letting them know that you are praying for them. And just ask them how you can be praying for them. And then offering the question, what can I do to help? It's a different kind of relationship at this stage in both of your life stages. And you have to become more of a servant leader. It's not going to work to kind of be like, well, if I were you, this is what I'd be doing. The posture has to be, how can I help? We have to begin building into the lives of our children, often who are now becoming parents of their own and are floundering. And this is a great time where we can begin to bring grace and truth into the situation through the front door of how can I help? I'm not here to judge. I want to start with, I just want to support you because I remember how hard it was for me. Beyond these tools and techniques, there's probably one thing that matters more in seeking to parent our children in ways that lead them to to a hopeful and healthy future. And that is to prioritize your own personal transformation in Christ. That is is the biggest thing that you need to do as a parent in order to be an effective Christian parent. I wrote an article in 2010 called Top 10 Mistakes Christian Parents of Teens Make. My number one mistake, I would still stand by it, and that mistake is this. Expecting your teen, or in this case your child, to have a devotion to God that you're not cultivating in your own life. That is a huge mistake. And, our, and, and your kids, and certainly your teenagers and your young adult children, will see through that. That doesn't mean that unless you're perfect, you can't challenge your, your child. That's not what I'm saying. But we have to take a good look in the mirror and saying, am I asking my child to follow Christ in a manner in which I couldn't honestly say I expect of myself? I'm not even making inroads towards. I'm not... Um, repenting and confessing of and moving in a new direction to cultivate that same kind of thing, that, that's dangerous. While it wasn't, we was never an earthly parent, 
who's a spiritual parent to countless people, and yet look what Paul says was his driving priority as a pastor, as a, as a father figure, and as a pastoral shepherding head to a community. To the community in Philippi, he says, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already attained all this, or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. I hope one day my kids say of me, my dad seemed more interested His passion to have us follow Jesus came out of a greater passion for him to be faithful and follow Jesus. It wasn't just do as I say, not as I do. One came out of the other. My primary task as a pastor to you as a parent is to remind you that before the call to parent your child is the call call to take up your cross and follow Jesus. That precedes the good and holy calling to be a godly parent. Because it's in Jesus that we discover, even for ourselves and and as a parent, as a couple, the bigger story, and a story that's big enough to actually dislodge the culture story that all life's about happiness and success. And it's in Jesus that we find the new game plan through which we can impart his grace and love. It's in Jesus through which we become empowered by his spirit to love with a love that doesn't just emanate from our own broken and sinful hearts, but emanates from his spirit and from his grace. And so go forth, parents, within this community with renewed strength and vision for your calling as a parent because your greatest contribution to the kingdom of God may not be something that you do. It may be someone that you raise. Let's pray. God, would you grow us up as parents? Some of us have inherited a a wonderful parental godly script that we can just kind of um, run with and, and, and tweak. Some of us are building a foundation from nothing or, or worse than nothing, God. Maybe an abusive relationship, uh, a wildly dysfunctional um, family system. God, would you give us grace? We want to be parents that are growing in our faith and are learning to wisely and carefully and lovingly put your grace and truth before our children. May your grace and your mercy extend to all parents here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. What I do is, is um, I've written a prayer for mothers. I've put together a prayer for mothers. And so what I invite you to do is to remain standing, um, but for our mothers-to-be, spiritual mothers, current mothers, I invite you to just hold out your hands. Um, you just just like a little cup, and just as a symbolic way of saying, God, I, I want to receive this blessing. And I know Mother's Day culturally tends to get spun in a very positive way, but it's also a very challenging and um, heartbreaking time for, for many people. And so this prayer encompasses both gratitude for, um, for, for positive experiences with mothers and also healing for those who, for whom that's not your story. And that hasn't been the reality. So let's pray.
God, one of a mother's chief's assignments is to nurture and to love and to, to tend and to treasure her children, to teach her children. God, we give you thanks for those of us who had mothers who fulfilled this mission well. We thank you for mothers who are selfless and patient and strong and resilient and mothers who fought for our best. And we're grateful for mothers who modeled courage and faith to us, us, uh, mothers who took the time to understand us so that they could wisely and effectively form us into the men and women that we are today by your grace and through your truth. For everyone in this room who had a wonderful mother, may they take time today to communicate that gratitude both to you and to them in a way that is meaningful. But God, I'm also aware that there are those here today who don't feel gratitude towards their mothers. And that may be because of abandonment or abuse. Maybe because one's mother made them the scapegoat of all her troubles. Maybe for some, a mother came between you and your father, or continually forced you to choose sides. Maybe you had a mother who placed between herself, placed you between herself and her husband. Maybe she didn't protect you from him. Maybe you had a mother who insisted that you mother her instead of mothering you. And you felt important about that, but you didn't realize that you were becoming trapped and overwhelmed, and now you've been running on empty, and you don't know what you need or what you want or how to articulate it. Perhaps your mother left you in the care of hurtful or dangerous people. Maybe she didn't see or believe you when you went to her for help. Perhaps she was just too busy to see anything that you wanted or needed at that time. God, for those here who need healing from injuries of the heart, for those who need to be set free from bitterness, who need to finally forgive and to let go of heartache and disappointments, grief or rage, may your spirit bring the necessary peace and power. May these women know, may these sons and daughters know that they are not alone, and may they experience the truth of your words in Isaiah 66, that like a good mother, comforts her child so I will comfort you for the mothers in this room God the mothers to be spiritual mothers fill them with your spirit so that they can fulfill the purposes that you have for them not just as mothers but as female image bearers as well we love them God and we ask that you will boldly bless them today and in the year ahead and in the strong and powerful name of Jesus we pray and ask these things amen You are dismissed with a blessing. Um, If you would like prayer um, for something related to Mother's Day, myself and Linda will just be in that little enclave over here, and you're welcome to come forward. You can share as you feel comfortable. You don't have to share anything at all. You can just come forward and say, I'd like someone to pray for me, and we'd love to pray for you. Have uh, Have a great Sunday.